says, for the last three weeks, I haven't, I'm visiting, so if you're visiting, we're in the same boat, we're on it, right? And so if you've been here the last three weeks or so, they've been going through the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is a very fascinating book, but you really need to understand the first four chapters in order for 5 through 16 to make sense. There are some concepts that we need to nail down, and so I kind of want to bring you up to speed. Maybe you forgot these things. Maybe you weren't here for a week. And so we're just going to kind of get a brief history and kind of bring us up to speed before we jump in to chapter 4. And so what is Romans? Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. We call them epistles. That's a fancy biblical term for him, but it's just a letter. He would write these to sometimes individual people and oftentimes churches. There are often letters of correction. Sometimes he would be addressing something. There would be encouragement in them. And this one in particular is written to the church in Rome. That's why it has the name Romans. I'm saying this all for my sake too. I, I was like, Romans? Why is it named Romans for a long time? It's a miracle I ever got through Bible college. Um, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, this was definitely a work of the Holy Spirit, not me. So as we continue through the, the book of Romans, it has an interesting historical context. What ended up happening in Rome, which was, Rome was the known world then, right? Is this emperor Claudius rose up and he kicked all the Jewish people out for five years. And so it didn't matter if you were a Messianic Jew or if you were still a traditional Jew, he kicked them all out. And so this church in Rome that had already been established, which we see in Acts chapter 28, was made up of Jews and Gentiles. It was made up of both of them that were there. And so as he kicked him out, the Gentiles were still in Rome, and the Jews had left. And so coming back in after that band had been lifted five years later, the Jewish people are coming back into a church that had been left to these Gentiles. And so all of these traditions had been thrown out, right? And so as Paul's addressing these these Jewish people coming back in, they're trying to force upon them the law. They're trying to force upon them these different things that we find from the Old Testament that the Jewish people would have been a part of. So they're saying you have to be circumcised, you have to have the law, you have to have these feast days. And so they're coming in trying to press upon this Jewish culture to this church once again. And so Paul's kind of setting the record straight. And this is a huge theme throughout Scripture. It's a theme that Jesus touched on with the scribes and the Pharisees. Oftentimes he said, have you not read? Right? And when he's saying that, he's addressing it, saying you're taking these things out of context. Now we're coming into an era where we now worship in spirit and truth. And so he's saying we don't need these certain things. We're covered by grace. Paul also writes another letter to the Galatians. And this was the whole entire theme of that as well. And so this is a, a theme that is huge within Scripture. But what's awesome for us is that we can pull this application out of it and we can really get back to basics because it's simply the gospel message being communicated. That's what the Jewish people coming back into the church of Gentiles needed. They needed the simple gospel so they knew what was traditions and what was biblical, what they needed to continue on with. One of the major themes in this is unity. He really stressed that to the church in Romans because this was, Rome was the known world then, right? You would want a unified church there. You'd want the gospel to be going out. Not only that, the Holy Spirit was going to use it in a mighty and powerful way because of their poor access. This was the ticket to the rest of the world. This was a ticket to bring the gospel everywhere. 
They could get to Spain from there. And so we're going to see the importance that Paul wants to nail this down once and for all. He really wants them to get it. One of these themes within this book is righteousness. And righteousness is, you need to understand this term in order to understand the rest of this letter. Righteousness, a biblical definition for this, is God always does what is right and what is just. And that he is faithful to fulfill his promises. This is a huge theme in chapters 1 through 3. And then he kind of brings in the next theme in chapter 3, verse 31, which is justification. Justification is the other word that we need to know and need to have a biblical definition for that. And what that is, is having that righteousness that we, just, that we just talked about bestowed upon you. Having that righteousness bestowed upon you. And that's what happened when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. His blood is now our justification. As we look at that, having faith in the risen Jesus, knowing that he was God, right, is what justifies us before God. God cannot look upon sin, and so we needed something to cover us so that we could come before God and have community and communion with God. And so understanding these terms and understanding chapters 1 through 4 are going to lead us into the rest of the book. Really, Pastor Brian, I think last week said that once you get to chapter 3, you have all the themes, and now we're just unpacking them. And so chapter 4, we're going to unpack this idea of justification by faith. And so with that, let's jump into chapter 4. I'm, I apologize to you guys. I know that your Bibles are all NLTs that are in the back of there. I'm preaching from the ESV, so if they don't match up, I'm sorry about that, guys. But go ahead and grab a Bible and open it if you have it, and let's dive into these scriptures together. This is a really fun chapter because what ends up happening here as he's addressing these Jewish people going back to the Gentiles in Rome is he really, Paul beats them at the, their own game. We remember Paul was the, the Jew of all Jews, and so he knew these scriptures backward and forward, and he's going to use what they're twisting to try to force these laws upon the Gentiles. He's going to say, hey, let's get back to the core and see what this is all about. So jumping in to chapter 4, keep that in mind. He's beating them at their own game. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, for if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so here's this theme. It was the belief in God that was counted to him as righteousness. He believed that God was faithful in his promise, and that's what was counted to him as righteousness. The theme is being laid out here for us. Abraham is one of my favorite Old Testament characters. I think just because I identify with it, right? He knocks it out of the park at the end. That's the thing that we always remember. Remember, we remember the sacrifice. We remember him waiting uh, for Isaac to be born and then that. But we, you know, and then we kind of remember the sin with him and Hagar and that whole thing and his disbelief in that. But if you remember the, really the story, if you go through Genesis, the story of Abraham is him struggling with his faith really is what it is. When he nails it, he nails it, and we forget about all that stuff. I hope that's what's happening now. I'm nailing it so everybody's like, we'll forget about Max's past, right? But if you remember, like, there's a couple times where he's entering in to, to, to places, and people start taking interest in his wife, and he goes, I'm just going to say it's my sister. 
I'll just hand them on over, right? Like they're hitting on his wife, and he's like, okay, like let's do this. This will make it easier. I don't even like, like when, when I, my wife, she looks like she's in high school. My wife, she's not, don't worry. I'm not a creep. She's in her 20s. She's only two years younger than me. But I look like I'm like 70, and she looks like she's 12. And so it doesn't work at all. People look at us weird. And when she was pregnant, people looked at us really weird, right? But I don't even like when, like, high school kids hit on my girlfriend. I'm not my girlfriend, my wife. That sounded weird. Uh, my girlfriend either, but my wife especially. No, I'm just kidding. But my wife, right? Like, we were in San Francisco, like, four years ago. And these kids come up to my wife, and they're like, hey, we're having a party. You should come. And I'm like, I'm sitting right here, and we've been married for three years. Like, get over it, bud. Like, move on, right? Like, I don't even like that. And here Abraham is just like, whoop, here you go. Like, these are going to make things easier. Like, just dishing her out, I guess. Seems crazy to me. But then also, we remember when he does, he, he, sometimes he would kind of follow God. And those are my favorite stories because that's me, right? I'm going to kind of live in the gray areas a lot of times. We remember when God calls Abraham, right, to leave the land of his father and to go off kind of on his own. So he's called to leave his family. And we read, I believe it's Genesis chapter 12. I didn't write it down. I'm kind of the snowball in here. But it's one of those. I took Genesis class at some point, so it's in there. Um, <laughs> just messing with you guys. I'll find it and I'll tell you. But anyways, in that, he's supposed to leave and he waits for his father to die, which was not the commandment for God, from God. And then also he brings his nephew Lot with him, which just turned out to be a really bad idea. If we always remember, Lot was always kind of getting in the way, right? Like that's what was ending up happening. So even in his attempt to obey God, he really wasn't that good at it. And then as we go through, we see him trusting that promise of God. God delivers on that promise. And then we see his obedience as well. And he knocks it out of the park, helps us forget about all those things. So I like to remind you. So it makes me feel better about myself. Just kidding. Jumping back in to verse 4, it says this. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, here's that theme again, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so Paul's establishing for us the difference between a wage that is due and a gift that is given. He's establishing this. He's telling you exactly what that is. He says, if you work, then it's owed to you. But we know that's exactly what the law was, that they couldn't work their way to God, that we fall short, that our trespasses are too great. And so we needed a free gift, and that was that we'd be justified by the blood of Christ and so that we could come before our Father, so that we could have restored relationship with him. And so he lays it out for us right here. He's saying there's wages and there's a gift what salvation is, what justification is, the doctrine of justification, it is a gift. You accept it. And then he goes on and he does something brilliant here. Remember, he's speaking to the Jewish people that are coming back in and enforcing these laws onto the Gentile. So he brings David into the mix. He just kind of told about Abraham. He's going to continue on with Abraham. But David would have been somebody that they looked up to. Somebody they would have studied. Somebody they would have idolized. Why? He was a man after God's own heart. That's how he was described. And so he brings this psalm into it. And he teaches them this lesson of justification through this psalm that David wrote. Psalm 32, 1 through 2. And in this, it's paraphrased in Romans, 6, or Romans 4, 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts as righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, 
but and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. He uses the psalm to show them that it has always been about faith, and faith is what justifies us. The law showed us that we fell short and that we needed a rescuer. And he's saying David even realized that. David realized that it was his faith. David realized that it wasn't working towards God, but instead that he needed to be justified by something else. He got this years before the time of Christ. And so he's using these scriptures that they would have used to force laws upon the Gentiles and saying you need to reread these and see that your Old Testament heroes believe the same thing that has always been about justification, not about the actual act. And that's what he gets back into in verse 9. Continuing on, it says this, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He's saying it was a private demonstration, right? He was saying it was really a private covenant between him and God. I I pray it's private because that would be weird if it wasn't, right? Like that's the whole point of it is that it's a private thing and that he's devoting himself to God in this way. But he's saying he was justified before that and he was justified through his faith. It wasn't the actual act that was happening. It was the faith in which he had. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Do you see what he did there? He says, hey, look, yes, He did have this covenant with God, but it always was about the faith. And in there, he says that it wasn't simply the act. He makes that really clear in verse 12. He says, and it makes him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised. So he's like, it's not merely just the act, but those who walked in faith. Walked in the footsteps of faith that Abraham had. And so he's saying it was never about the act. Never about the act. Always about the faith that justified him. And it's about our faith that justifies us. And I think that this is kind of one of these things where I want to pause real quick and just kind of try to draw some application out of it for us. So I've grown up in the church, and um, probably like several of you have also, and I've been around church for a long time. I work at a church, and i kind of grown comfortable to the things at church. I don't mind wearing a tie. I don't mind coming and singing songs and being in here. I don't mind, you know, the the different things. But I think a lot of times I start to hold them in the same hand as the gospel. I'm like, church is done this way. Why? Because I've always done it. Why? Because I've always been a part of something like this. And I realize that as God works on my heart, there are certain things that we absolutely need to hold strong to. I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that's the only way. That truly is the only way. 
I do have a reverence for Scripture. I believe it's an error. I do believe specific things are sin and that we have to stand upon the Word of God to, to know what is right and wrong, and we need to continue with that and not kind of have these gray areas or anything like that. I do believe in all of these things. I hold them in this hand, but I think a lot of times, and especially recently, I'm like, I like church this way, and so I hold it in the same hand rather than saying, no, it's about the next generation that needs the gospel. I need to be willing to kind of change some of these things in order to say, hey, these are the things I stand upon. These are the things that I need. This is the gospel. This is what you need. This is what's actually going to save you. But my traditions, they're just my traditions. Am I willing to reach out to the next generation? And that's exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus came on the scene, if we remember the woman at the well, that, that story, he wasn't supposed to go to Samaria. He would have hated the Samaritans. And yet he says, no, I need to go there. And then they ask him to save because this lady has this, ask him to stay because this lady has this crazy experience. And he goes, of course I'll stay. He stays there a few days. Why? Because he's defying all odds to give the gospel. And you guys are like, okay, you're a young guy. What do you know? I'm a junior high and high school pastor. I don't think that I'm that far removed. And then I show up on a Wednesday night and I'm running around with a bunch of junior high and high schoolers, and I have no idea what they're talking about, right? And that's like a lesson to me. I'm like, I got to, you know, the music that they play, I'm like, I don't like any of this. Honestly, I don't. I don't. I, you know, and the way that they dress, I'm like, I don't dress like that. But, I mean, I look homeless half the time, so it's probably a good thing. But, you know, I come before, the, I come before them to give them the gospel, to give them these things. I'm like, I'm willing to kind of hold my style loosely, right? I'm willing to, to be there and to be a part of what they're doing. I had a junior high kid. I was talking. I'm like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And we're kind of talking. And he was like, I want to be a mumble rapper. I don't even know what that is, right? We're in the same boat here. Like, I'm dealing with this stuff. And I'm like, okay, I, I don't know what that means, literally. And I'm scared to Google it because I don't know, right? <laughs> I don't want to see half the things that they're looking at. I'm like, come on now. And so it's a lesson to me in this, and it's probably a lesson for a lot of you that have been in church a lot of times. We have our traditions, and we have the gospel. The gospel is the thing that we need to stand upon and say, this is it. But our traditions need to be able to shift in order to allow the next generation to, to pick up where we left off. And I love that because I firmly believe that God is preparing the hearts of people. I believe that the Holy Spirit is doing a mighty and powerful work. I, I'm in the class right now. Um, about the minor prophets, and I was reading Jonah, and that's the whole story is that God was providing, uh, that God was changing the hearts of the Ninevites, and he just shows up on the this, this scene with the most kind of half-hearted evangelistic approach ever, and all these people get saved, millions, right? And so if that's what's going on then, imagine what God wants to do in our culture when we're saying, hey, we just want to be a mouthpiece for God. Like, let's show up and let's do these things because this is what we're holding tight, tight, tight to, not our traditions. And Paul addresses that in this to this church. Continuing on, verse 13 says this. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring would be uh, that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. <clears throat> For if the inheritance of the law, who are the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Let's read 14 and 15 one, time, one more time. For if it is the inheritance of the law, who are the heirs? Faith is null, saying faith is null, right? That's what it says. I don't know why I repeated that. And the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
Transgression simply means crossing the line. We're born into sin. We're sinful people. And so we've crossed that line. Where there is grace, that line, right, is erased and we're able to join into community with our Father once again. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He died for us so that line would be erased, so that that justification, that righteousness could be bestowed upon us. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't look at sin. He can't look upon sin. And so when God looks at us, now he sees the righteousness of what God did on the, what Jesus did on the cross. God in flesh did on the cross. He died for us. And that righteousness is bestowed upon us. So now he can look upon us again. Now we can have community with him again. And that's what this is saying. Where there is no law, there is no transgressions. There isn't that line. We're covered in grace. And I'm not saying just throw out the law. I do think that we do need to look. And there's a lot to glean from the Old Testament. I honestly believe that. I love the Old Testament when I look at it and read it. And I do think that there is a standard. And, and we, you know, we want to walk in the light of Christ and we don't want to separate ourselves because of sin or anything like that. But there is grace because we fall into sin. We're born into sin. We have a sinful nature and we all sin. You probably have all sinned already this morning. I know I have. Somewhere, some way. I don't know. I had to drive all the way out from Boise and I was going a little over the speed limit if I'm being honest. Didn't want to be late. Got here extra early. So we're golden. I didn't really, I actually wasn't speeding. Funny story. We're going off on a side tangent. I got time. My watch ran out of battery, so it's permanently at 9 o'clock. I don't care. You guys aren't going to lunch anytime soon. I mean, come on. So I was driving here, and I, it really did run out of battery. Like 30 seconds before I started, I got up here, and I'm like, dang, this is going to be an interesting one. Um, there's that clock, but I can't see it anyway. So <laughs> guys are out of luck. Anyways, I was driving here, right? I didn't realize that it was like 80 for like a stretch, and so I'm going like 60, and everybody's like passing me and looking all angry. I didn't know, right? So I just continued on. I saw the sign that said 80. I, my car doesn't even go 80. I had to borrow a car to get out here, actually, because mine's toast, and I haven't uh, you know, paid the registration on it because I live so close to work that I just walk there. So I have a car dead in my driveway if anyone wants it. It's all yours. Check engine light's been on for years. Um, anyways, continuing on. <laughs> Jumping back into 16, we're going to look at Abraham again. <clears throat> See, that's what you get when Cloverdale people come out here. I mean, we just go off on tangents. It's in our blood, I guess. All right, continuing on. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the inheritance of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. <clears throat> And in the presence of God, in whom he believed, he gave life to the dead and called into existence the thing that did not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he shall become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall be your offspring. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And so it kind of paints the picture here of the faith that, that Abraham had, right? This promise that God had made to him was that he was going to be the father. That's what Abram literally means. That was his name, was Abram. Can you imagine having that, be, having your name be dad and you have no kids? Like, that would be an awkward one. They're like, oh, what's up, dad? You know, 
Like, where's your kids at? He's like, don't got any yet. Still waiting on God, right? He was trusting in this promise. And then God comes on the scene and he changes his name to Abraham and makes this promise to him that he's going to have, what, many nations. It's like, how can you do that when you have no kids? And so now, can you imagine, that's even more of an awkward situation. Like, what's up, Dad? Like, his friends are coming by. What up, Dad? And he's like, no, it's Dad of many, right? Dad of these nations. And they're like, really? Like, where's your kids at? You, had just, you just birthed a bunch of nations? Nope, hasn't happened yet. And I'm almost 100 years old, which that's disgusting if any 100-year-olds are having kids. Like, just shouldn't be a thing, right? And that's what's crazy here is that we get this picture of what God does through that. If we're being 100% honest, right? It says that he called into existence out of the thing that didn't exist yet. He called life from death. Something that shouldn't have worked out, he brought life through. And he makes that promise. And Abraham knew that promise. And so when God calls him to be obedient, to go and sacrifice his son, can you imagine? It's like, what? how am I supposed to have these lions through this? So that's the story. They hike up, and they're going to make this burnt sacrifice, which is going to be him. And that's what we call a type of Christ. That's what happens in the Old Testament, is that we get kind of the story of Christ, right, in the Old Testament. And that's what this is, is, is he hikes Isaac up there, and we see the replacement for the sacrifice. But there's kind of a funny moment in there, right, if we remember back to this. And this was one of my favorite stories as like a kid because I was like, this is really cool. We had felt board Jesus because I grew up Baptist, you know, and so it was like, boom, you know, little, little Abraham would cruise up the, the mountain with Isaac and they're getting ready for the sacrifice and whatnot. And now I have, a, I have a baby and I have a children's storybook and I'm like cringing to read this to him because I don't want him to like think I'm going to do something crazy or something to him, you know. I'm like reading this story through it like, I'm like, let's just skip to the end and see how God worked this one out, right? You don't need the whole sacrifice the son part. But as they're going up there, Isaac starts to put two and two together. And he asks them, he's like, Dad, like, what are you doing? What are we going to sacrifice? And in Genesis 22, verse 8, Abraham answers them. And he answers them like this. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on. That's a little reassurance. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm sure, Dad. But if you look at the words in here, it says God will provide the lamb. But when he gets all the way up there, God didn't provide a lamb. What did he end up providing? He provided a ram. Subtle difference there. But if we look to this, this is a promise to us because God does fulfill that promise. God does eventually give us the sinless, spotless lamb, which was Jesus Christ that was sacrificed for us. And so we need to read the Bible with the lens of them looking forward and us looking back. We can always look at the pinnacle that is the, Christ, uh, that is the cross and Jesus Christ's resurrection. We can look at that and we can say, okay, this is how we've been justified. Even in the first pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 22, we see this promise that there is going to be a sacrificial lamb that pays for us so that we can be justified and brought back before our Father. How incredible is this? God knew what he was doing, and why did Abraham have this all counted as righteous? Because he had faith. And so with us looking back, we need to have the same faith of saying, hey, Jesus was sacrificed. So that his righteousness can be bestowed upon us who have faith. And then it goes on to describe Abraham, Abraham's faith. In verse 20 it says, says this, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Man, I hope that that describes my faith. 
Oftentimes, it doesn't, if I'm being honest. Because look at how it's described here. Let's just read that one more time. No unbelief made him waver. I hope that's me. Concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith, giving God the glory, fully convinced that God was able to fulfill his promise. Does that describe your faith this morning? Are you looking to the cross saying, look at how he fulfilled. Look at this promise that he made to me. And now that I'm justified because I believe in what happened on that cross. Do you need to take time and step back from that and say, okay, get me back to that place. I think a lot of times we sit and we get kind of involved in the traditions and we don't really realize what is going on. We don't really have a faith like this where we're trusting super hard in the promises of God. I don't think it's something that we're often reminded of. And this morning as we draw application out of this, I hope that you can just step back and say, hey, do I remember? Do I remember what Jesus did on the cross? It's really about this concept of digging back into your first love. John brings this up when he writes to the church at Ephesus in Revelation. He says, you've, you've, you've abandoned your first love. Why? They were a good church. They were doing all the church, churchy, churchy things, right? But they weren't looking to the cross. They didn't have this life transformation because of their faith. And I pray this morning that you can take this description and that this describes your faith. Maybe you're on just like a spiritual high and you're like, yes, this is me right now. I pray that that continues. Maybe you're like, hey, I've kind of just grown null and void and I haven't really thought about these things. Or I start to serve with this intention, right, of thinking that I'm earning something back. Is your faith described like this? No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave God the glory, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And let's look at how, he, how Paul finishes up this letter. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for, our, for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and then raised for our justification. And so he gives the gospel message in this. He's saying he was given up and he was killed because of our sin. And then he conquered that sin and that's what justifies us. We're justified through having faith in Jesus. And so I pray that we just rest assured in that. I pray that you guys take these concepts of this righteousness and justification as we push on through the book of Romans. As you guys continue on, always have this in the back of your mind of what's going on here. The simple gospel needs to be evident in your life. Your faith needs to be like Abraham's here. We all struggle with this. But as we continue on, I just pray that God just does a crazy and mighty and powerful work within this church through this series. I'm excited that I got to share with you guys. Thank you for having me out here. Um, I, I'm just blessed to be able to see what you guys do here on a Sunday, and I'm really excited about it. So let's pray. The worship team can come back up, and, uh, and then we'll play a song, and you guys will be out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of Scripture. We thank you that we could come before Romans, God that we can open it and just allow it to speak to us. So we pray that we leave this place, knowing that we're justified through our faith and nothing else, that it wasn't about works, it was never about works. Even as we draw from the Old Testament, we always see that it's been about faith, God. And so give us faith like Abraham's is described here, God. We know that you always fulfill your promises. We love you and we're grateful. In your holy name, amen.